we are uh, we're always inadequate to understand your word. We're inadequate to believe it and, Lord, to walk in its freedom and its beauty. So, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, open up our eyes, our hearts uh, to receive this word. Turn away all thoughts. May we focus on the amazing gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So uh, up till now, though Mark has told us at least six times about how astonished people were at his mighty deeds, his healings and stealing the waters, um, the responses of really true faith are really few and far between. Uh, One in chapter five, but that was by a woman that had been declared unclean to the Jews. So she exhibited her faith. And then twice in chapter seven, people uh, manifested that faith. Uh, One woman who was, uh, there are two Gentiles though, that profess faith. And if you ask the question, well, who's declared him to be the son of God? Okay, so Mark opens the whole gospel with Jesus, the son of God. That's who this is about. And then at Jesus' baptism, the father says, this is my son. But no human being has said it. Demons on three occasions have said it. But no human being has said anything about the son of God. And then we'll see also about this word Messiah later. But what about the disciples themselves? Uh, They have been amazed also, and they even were given authority at one point and sent out so that they actually uh, healed people and cast out demons. So you'd think, wow, they must have been in tight, you know, in believing in Jesus. How could they do this without it, right? And yet... Mark, on one occasion, the narrator, talks about their hardness of heart. And then later, Jesus is rather astonished at the hardness of their heart. Because they were in the boat, wondering what they're going to do, because they forgot the bread. They only have one loaf. That's after Jesus had fed 5,000 and fed 4,000. You think, how could you be concerned about where your bread's going to come from, right? And he he mentioned the hardness of their heart. So, this is a tremendous breakthrough moment. At first, it looks like more than it actually is in terms of what Peter says. Now, the setting here is very interesting. Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles straight north of the Sea of Galilee. So it's really up there, right? And this had been built by uh, Philip, who was what they called a tetrarch at the time. And he built it in honor of himself, Philippi, and Caesar. Uh, it's called Caesarea Philippi to distinguish it from this well-known Caesarea on, on the coast. Um, now, it's right under Mount Hermon, which is a really pretty big place, like 9,000 feet, highest place in Syria. It divides now Lebanon and Syria. In fact, interesting uh, note, 
on top is the, uh, uh, is the highest constantly year-round manned position of the United Nations forces. There you go. Top of Mount Hermon. Uh, it's actually called um, Hotel Hermon. <laughs> the UN forces are. But this, what's more interesting is that this was quite an unlikely place to hear the first declaration of Jesus as Messiah. Not only because it was a place of Roman power, because it was also a center of worship of Pan, the god who was the keeper of flocks, and he himself was half goat, half man. So right here on the edges of secular power and paganism is where Jesus is first proclaimed Messiah. So it starts with Jesus' questions to the disciples. And you notice, of course, he starts, what are people saying? And then comes into, what do you think? So what are people saying about me? That's our first point, right? What's the talk about town? Um, so opinions varied, and he was held in highest esteem, right? Put him among the greatest people. I mean, John the Baptist was recognized by an amazing prophet, and, and Elijah is mentioned, and the prophets. And you'd think this is a compliment, but it, none of this is a compliment to Christ. Uh, this is just putting him in some kind of defined old category. He has no category, right? This is actually a denial of who Jesus is so far. Uh, just like people will say, oh, I, I, I believe in Jesus. I, I like Jesus. I think he's one of the great teachers of the world. Oh, right. <laughs> you, you probably think. but And that's fine if someone thinks that. But that doesn't begin to get at who Jesus really is. So as many times, uh, you know, Peter takes the lead, but it's in response to this personal question. Okay, that's what people think. What do you think? You know, this points out that confession of Jesus can't be done for you. Uh, you have to confess Jesus yourself, no matter what all is going around you, no matter what anybody else thinks about it. The question that comes to you and me from Christ, Darwin, who do you think I am? Bill, who do you think I am? Mary, Bob, who do you think I am? That's the question. And you want, the, the question is, what's his purpose? What did he come here for? What does this mean to you? What is he to you? And of course, this answer has everything to do with how you will live. Will you identify with this Jesus or you walk away from him? Will you follow him or will you deny and reject him? The way Mark sets this thing is that he eventually addresses the crowd. This isn't so much addressed to disciples to continue, but it's addressed to people who are faced. Will you follow this Jesus? Will you receive him? What will you do with him? And of course, as often the case, Peter steps forward. You're the Messiah, Christ, 
Uh, Messiah is the Old Testament word for anointed one. When you ever see that phrase in the Old Testament, anointed one, whether it's talking about David or some prophecy like Psalm 2, anointed one is Meshiach. It's the Hebrew word is Messiah, Meshiach. But if you, when you read the Greek translation in the Old Testament, it says Christos, right? Every time it's Christ, Christos. So they're one in the same thing, but we sometimes don't associate them. But this is the watershed event in Mark's gospel because he began his account saying this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, Messiah, son of God. And this is the first time since then we've heard the word. Okay, so. You read it as an opening. This is about Messiah. And you're like, Messiah, 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 Messiah. Here it is. But there is a, a problem. We have not heard the word Messiah until now. But we're surprised first by the fact that Jesus would rebuke them. Right? That's kind of shocking. Those are strong words. Strictly charge them sounds okay. But that's the same word he used to rebuke the winds. Right? Or rebuke even uh, demons. You'd think you'd say, good, Peter, good. You're finally getting it. But the problem is, it's the right word. But what Peter and the disciples think it means is really not right. Okay, And what all the Jews thought it meant was not right. And so the reaction to an announcement that Jesus is Messiah would really mess, humanly speaking, the purpose of Christ as he moves toward the cross. So they must keep quiet about it. And then immediately, and we come to point two here, here is what is happening. Here he is showing them, okay, your idea of Messiah is absolutely wrong. And here is what Messiah really means. Because in Jewish thought, and this includes the disciples, the future king, as some of you have heard, would be entirely human, but he would have, he would be wise, he would be free of sin, he would have miraculous powers by which he would absolutely defeat all of uh, Israel's enemies and he would bring peace to Israel forever. That's what Messiah is going to do. And among Israel, even though it's embedded in the Old Testament, in Jewish thought, there was no reference for what Jesus is going to say. And due to Pompey's uh, seizure of Jerusalem some hundred years before this, Messianic passion was at a fever pitch. Uh, And in fact, in the last century really close to where they are. In fact, they passed this village where this guy, uh, Judas uh, of Galilee, was born. So this, this has a lot of messianic fever about it. He led a revolt, and the, and the Romans crushed it. It was a disaster. But all of this just keep... And he, fact, in fact, thought that he was going to bring about the messianic kingdom. That's what he thought. That's, that's how this is a whole part of Jewish thinking. And so that 
thought, of course, of course, there's nothing else Peter could think at this point. But have this view. So you notice Jesus doesn't deny that he's Messiah in verse 29 and 30. But right here, he began to teach them what it means to be Messiah. It's kind of like if uh, someone was visiting you and they call you and they tell you they're outside. They've just pulled up. And he said, I've got my trunk with me. So you, okay, okay, I'll come out and help you. And you go outside to get what you think is going to be a big suitcase. He's got an elephant with him, right? (laughs) Oh, that kind of trunk, right? It's that totally not, I I didn't have that picture (laughs) that you had an elephant with you uh, to come visit me. And it was about that wild and crazy and and off the charts for Peter to hear this. This Messiah is not going to, in fact, inflict suffering on his enemies. He will suffer for his enemies. That concept had never been in Judaism, even though it's in the Old Testament. He will not bring a warrior's sword against human enemies. He's going to bring a warrior's sword against Satan, against sin, against death itself. His his sights are not on just this physical, temporary enemy. His sights are on eternity. His sights are on the claims of the eternal God. He comes not as a warrior to be served by people, but a servant to die for people. That concept associated with the Messiah, it was never associated with Messiah, ever. No one in Israel had ever talked about this. There was never a mention in Jewish writings about Messiah dying. So this is shocking. It's unthinkable. It's disoriented. And so, he, and nonetheless, he says it, right? And it says in verse 32, he said this plainly. It means boldly, openly. It's an interesting comment from Mark. He said, he, was, he wasn't beating around the bush. I mean, he put it out there, right? He, that's what he said. He just said it like that. Like, how could you just drop this bomb out of nowhere? And notice how he describes himself as the son of man. This, using this term makes it all the more astounding in what he says. Because Jesus is borrowing this word from a prophetic passage in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel, it speaks of one who will come with the clouds of heaven up to the ancient of days, who is the father on the throne, God on the throne. And to him will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. But son of man was his self-designation. So he was able not to stir up Conflict and, and, a, and a whole bunch of uh, mob activity by saying, I'm the son of David or I'm Messiah. Both of which would, you know, just send off red flags everywhere. 
But this kind of quiet, but even more glorious statement, the Son of Man. By this he meant the glorious one who will receive the kingdoms, who will rule all things, this Son of Man. And you get glimpses of this idea of the Son of Man toward the end. When he comes, verse 38, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And on into chapter 9, verse 1, when they see the kingdom of God coming with power. Oh yeah, this is the Son of Man. This is the glorious one who will receive kingdoms, who will rule the world. And then to say... The son of man must suffer. Mm. (laughs) Now, they didn't fully get why he's using son of man, but we can, right? The incongruency of taking that concept, that glorious statement about the son of man in Daniel, and then connecting it to the Messiah And connecting Messiah to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, which no one had ever done. So he's bringing the glory of Daniel 7 to the suffering mentioned in Isaiah 53, where it says that the servant will suffer and be a ransom for many. Who could have brought those together? Who could have imagined? Wait, you're talking about the same person here and here? The glory is... Of course, here's the amazing thing that shows forth the glory of God's salvation. Only God could take flesh. Only God could humble himself and suffer under the full weight of human sin and shame. Only God could go that low and suffer absolute abject humility. For our sake. No human being. No human being. Suffering that goes beyond our capacity to understand had to be brought to the table to make a perfect offering to God that would expiate our sin. That would make us sinners clean. He says he will suffer many things. That's an indication of the greatness of the suffering of the sin that he would bear. It had to be the Lord. We couldn't do it for ourselves. We have to stand back and just watch. (laughs) Just have to stand back and see the Father pouring out his wrath upon the Son, the Son bearing it as the Holy Spirit Hebrews tells us, is sustaining the Son to do that. We watch, in a sense, as the Trinity groans to deliver us from our sin. And he says, must suffer. This means it was God's will to do this. Why is it that Jesus ultimately was just the victim of bad circumstances like some theologians would want to say, some liberal or those who don't really respect the word? Well, you know, he tried, he's going to deliver, he's going to be that Messiah, but look how pathetic he did. 
Look how badly he performed as that Messiah. But that was the divine purpose. I believe we have in there a little lifting of the veil of why the world is even here. Why this world exists. It's going to be for this moment of the unveiling of the majestic God of love. He must suffer. He must suffer. One scholar writes, whoever understands the suffering of the son of man understands God. You understand the suffering of the son of man. You're beginning to understand who God is. And the meaning then of Messiah, not as some earthly, physical, military deliverer. He's anointed as a king, yes, but a king to die. A king of glory that we could not even imagine. And here's the interesting thing. In all of these mighty deeds Jesus had done, this astounding power, you know, to take a sick girl, a dead girl, raise her from the dead to to heal a leper, just for a leper who his whole life, and then you're healed. Blind men, deaf and dumb people, demon-possessed, the winds are storming. He just tells them to be quiet. But in all of that, dear friends, still his glory is veiled. Still his glory is covered up. And his glory can only be shown in the cross itself. In a, in a sense, this, this announcement that horrified Peter is the liberation, in a sense, of Christ's glory. It unveils the astonishing majesty of the God who comes to sacrifice for his people. So, here it is. The Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must be rejected even by the so-called best people in the world. The religious leaders of Israel and be killed by the admired judicial system of the world, the Roman Empire. The best mankind has to offer and we kill him. But even in Isaiah that talks so brutally about the suffering of Christ, it does say toward the end I will divide him a portion with the many. He will divide the spoil with the strong. But why? Why does he come in glory? Why is he exalted to receive the kingdoms from the ancient of days? Isaiah 53 says it there in verse 12. He's going to divide the spoil and he will receive the portion because he poured out his soul to death. Right? In Revelation 4 or 5, the question comes, who is worthy to, it says, unroll the seal, uh, but uh, the scroll, but that stands for who's worthy to rule the world? Who's worthy to roll out history? Who is? Who is? The Lamb of God. 
who was slain, who redeemed us. He's the worthy one who has the character of perfection and goodness and righteousness demonstrated in his giving himself for us. That's an amazing thing. You've demonstrated your worth in ruling. Well, of course, this was shattering to Peter, appalling. He refused to hear it. It shows just how wrong he thought Jesus was, that he would rebuke Jesus. No way. No way this is going to happen. As though he's saying, you know, I don't know where this is coming from, but this is not the plan. This is not how it's going to go. You can't go around saying things like that. It undermines everything we're working for. You can just, all the things going through Peter's mind, just this. And of course, as Jesus says here, to think in human terms, that is to think against what God is thinking and planning and doing is to become then a disciple or an instrument of Satan himself. And ironically for Peter, death is the only way to destroy the rule of Satan that he has over mankind because of sin. And unknown to Peter and unknown to anyone, uh, to borrow the uh, analogy from Lord of the Rings, it's not by storming the black gates of Mordor, but it's by the humility of giving up uh, the rule and power and prestige of the ring by dropping it into Mount Doom. That's how he's brought down. And that's the path Jesus chose, right? Of humility and brokenness, bearing shame and grief and sin. And then at the end here, Jesus says, and here's what it means to follow me. And We can see here that a wrong view of Messiahship, a wrong view of who Jesus is, certainly leads to a wrong view of what I am as a disciple and what he calls me to as a disciple. And notice, when you confess who Jesus is, you are confessing what you must become. That's what Jesus is saying here. Okay, you said I'm Messiah. Let me just tell you what that means for you. And he speaks of the cross. He speaks of taking up this cross. He's, he's talking about that cross beam that the one who's to be crucified would take on his back and take to the place of crucifixion. And as he's going, the crowds on both sides are just hurling abuses and invectives and curses upon him. And he said, here, this is, if you're going to follow me, here's the path. You take up that cross. He's not talking about literally, you know, this. But he's using a horrible, cruel tool, the the instrument of Roman terror in their empire. And he says, you must take it up, and it's kind of a death march for you. You're going to have to renounce everything and follow me and be willing to be hated by the world. choice to trust in Christ is the choice to bear that shame. Just like the writer of Hebrews says, let's go outside the city where he suffered, 
the rejected one like a piece of refuse let's go out and bear his reproach it's a hard sell okay it's a really hard sell and he says if you try to save your own physical and social well-being your own life by rejecting Jesus, then you'll lose your ultimate life forever. If you're willing to give up your own physical and social well-being for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the good news of Jesus, live by it and make it known, then you will rescue your ultimate life forever. It's not a both-and choice. I can have Christ and I can keep my life. It's either or. It's either or here. And which will it be for us? And notice how Jesus values your life in verses 36 and 37. Your vital life, your existence as a human being is worth more than the whole world. You're going to trade your life for the whole world? Bad deal. Miserable decision. Your life is worth more than the whole world added up. It means absolutely nothing compared to having your life. And the irony is you can lose the whole world and you still have everything in Christ. Everything now and forever in him. So we must be, in verse 38 speaks of that shame uh, of walking away from the, the being ashamed of him and choosing, I'm not going to follow Christ because I just would lose too much. I'd lose my friends. I'd lose my standing. I'd lose uh, my prestige. I, I'm not going to follow him. And so I've got to be willing to be made an object of contempt in the world. But I hazard being the object of Christ's contempt in judgment day. Dear friends, you're going to suffer contempt and you're going to have approval. Whose contempt are you going to opt for? Whose approval will you opt for? That's the demand here. And by my turning away from Christ and denying him, I'm I'm confirming the world and its idolatry and unfaithfulness. I'm coming over here and saying, you know, you're right. Jesus isn't worth anything. You're right. This is a bunch of nothing. You're right. It's not going to turn out good if I do that. I'm, I'm, I'm siding with the world's idolatry. It's like running into a burning building. And so, for Jesus, his own glory meant nothing, but the Father's meant everything. And that's why he was such a glorious offering to Christ, to, to God. Because he had only a mind for the glory of God. But brothers and sisters, I, uh, I, will, I will do none of this apart from his grace. I won't take one step toward this apart from his grace. I want people's approval. I, want, I don't want to be hated. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be abandoned. I don't want to be thought crazy, stupid. I don't want any of that. The only hope we have is that this God who acted in Christ Jesus, and he knows he has to do this as well. 
You don't do this on your own. He has to show so shine in our hearts that we see that beauty in such vivid ways that we gladly give ourselves up to him. It's interesting, this same word used for uh, forfeiting your soul, taking the world and giving up your soul, Paul uses in Philippians 3. And he says, I had a whole lot before, you know, a lot of religious uh, standing, a lot of popularity. And I counted all of that as loss. It's that word, forfeit. For the sake of Christ, I count everything as loss. Same word. For the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Oh, may God give us that grace. May God uphold our weakness. May God cause us to have a passion for Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, you alone can bring about in our lives this passion and love and, and, and true trust in Jesus. This, this resting in him and being glad in him and knowing that we have everything in him. To believe in the privilege of it and the, the power that will sustain us. The promise that we're given, Lord, to count it the most noble life we could live to live for his glory. Oh, Lord, we, we thank you and that we can appeal to you with all of our weakness, all our hardness of heart, all of our, all of our fear and cowardice. And, oh, Lord, I ask you to save us, to rescue us, so that we will count him glorious and give our lives up to his will. In his name we pray. Amen.